Welcome to In Your Nature podcast with me, Ricky Whelan. And with me, Niall Hatch. We're both with Birdwatch Ireland and we're delighted to have you along for another one of our episodes. And I'll start, as we always do, by saying the In Your Nature podcast is produced in partnership with the Heritage Offices of Leash and Offaly County Councils, supported by the Heritage Council and the Department of Housing, Local Government and Heritage. And this podcast is edited by Anne-Marie Kelly. Niall, I'm delighted today. I'm really thrilled to be talking about um, a, such a cool species in the Barnall. Oh yeah, one of my favourites. I've been looking forward to this one very much because it's a species I think that uh, it's just iconic. A lot of people in Ireland would, would think of it as the late, late show owl, that one that you see in the opening credits. Uh, there's something really magical about them and it's a bird that, um, you know, almost uniquely actually in the, in the world of birds of prey and in birds like that, there's no, nobody really has any negative view about them. They always just engender this, this, this wonderful affection that people have for them. And of course, you see them so rarely that when you do, it's a real landmark event. Like everyone remembers when they see an owl. Yeah, they do. And yeah, barnals are just totally special. Don't know if it's their colour, don't know if it's the face shape, don't know if it's the sort of, you know, the mystery around them because they're, they're nocturnal like a lot of other owls and uh, all that sort of stuff. They're just they're just fascinating creature. Um, might start off um, with you if you would be so kind as to describe them, because unfortunately um, they are widespread, but they're not terribly sort of um, omnipresent or common. So um, people won't probably have, have seen that many of them if they've ever caught a glimpse of one. Yes, yeah. So, so they are widespread across Ireland, um, but the population density isn't very high, uh, and a very wide range. Actually, they're found across um, most of the world. Um, you, you, they're, they're a species you find across Asia and through through the Americas and uh, uh, some Caribbean islands and so on, through into into Australia. So they're very very widespread species, and they look a bit different depending on where you see them in their range. But the basic structure is the same. And the way they look here in Ireland is that they're a very very pale owl, so very white uh, on the face and down onto the chest, uh, and then the back is this lovely gorgeous gorgeous sandy brown colour a very light brown with this lovely mot- mottling and waving in them if you see a barn owl feather up close it's just one of the most beautiful things that the pattern is just so subtle uh, the thing you first notice about them I suppose though is their face they have uh, this big heart shaped facial disc um, so this ruff of feathers that goes around the side of their faces uh, and this is an adaptation that uh, directs sound waves efficiently in towards their ears uh, it's a bit like a satellite dish it's sort of like a parabolic dish it gathers the sound waves in and directs them to their ears one ear is, is higher than the other so they're able to detect the slight difference in how long that time that the sound takes to hit one ear before the other uh, they're able to pinpoint exactly where their prey is so they can hunt in complete darkness um, they uh, they rely on their eyesight they don't echolocate the way that bats do or anything like that but they have very very good eyesight they can see uh, even just by starlight in very low light levels but even in complete darkness uh, even when there's no light they will still hunt because they have this amazing ability to build up a mental map of their surroundings so they know where all the trees branches are and the gateposts and the hedges and all of those and uh, those different uh, different obstacles so they can fly around those without hitting them and they zoom in and, and zone in on their on their prey and the rustles that the mice and so on that would, would make as they're, as they're going through the leaf litter so they're very effective like that the eyes are right in the front of their face they're very dark um, uh, eyes so it gives them this sort of big wide-eyed appearance uh, and so that's quite noticeable about them and Owls' eyes are quite different from those of most other birds. They're more like human eyes in many ways because most birds, their eyes are widely spaced. They're on the sides of their heads. If you look at a crow or a blackbird in your garden, you'll see that. Their eyes are right in the side. They have a big all wide, uh, wide field of view all around their heads. Uh, but owls have their eyes right in the front of their faces, just like we humans do. So I think that's one of the reasons perhaps why people find them so endearing. They look like little people. Uh, and uh, so they have a, a narrow field of view, kind of like the way that we do, but they can compensate for that being by, able, by being able to turn their head through 200 
170 degrees. So they can't keep spinning it round and round like a lot of people think they can, um, but they can turn it almost a, one, all the way over one shoulder and then round the other, the other way over the other shoulder, which gives them great all-round view. And one of my favourite things, of course, about them as well is their adaptation to flight. They have the special sort of fluffiness in the edge of their feathers, which means that they are silent in flight. You do not hear them when they fly past, and therefore the mice that they eat don't hear them either. So it's completely silent. I think that's some, sometimes if you have a close encounter with one, that's kind of why it can be so surprising. All of a sudden, this ghostly apparition appears out of nowhere. You never heard it, and all of a sudden, there it is in front of you. With these big staring eyes in front of you, um, there's just something really otherworldly about them. I think they're magic. Colour, um, people describe them as a white owl, but they're not really white. And another uh, funny thing about them is that the, the, the British and the Irish owl especially are particularly pale in colour. But the further east you go and in the Americas, they're, they're quite a rufous bird. Yes, they are. And in places like the Netherlands, you get a mixture of both. You have the, the dark-bellied barn owls and the pale-bellied barn owls. Uh, and no, nobody, into, well, at least until recently, was quite sure why you had different different appearance for these owls, why that would be. Does one have an advantage, one have a disadvantage? It, one of the theories now is that perhaps it can. It seems that um, particularly when there's, um, uh, when there's a lot of light in the sky, like full moon or something, the white breast of the very pale owls can help actually to dazzle their prey, strange as that may seem. They just get transfixed by this white shape in the sky. Um, so... Uh, Sometimes at more northerly latitudes, this may be an advantage. Um, nobody's quite sure of that. But it is interesting that these two different colour forms do occur across Europe and one hasn't replaced the other. Both still do exist. So you have it when you go from, as you said, from Ireland and in Britain, in this western part, in, in Spain and Portugal as well, uh, they're quite pale. Uh, then when you get to sort of the, the Netherlands and then through Germany into Austria, that kind of area, they become quite dark on the belly. But then when you get back to the Middle East, they become pale again. So when you see them somewhere like Cyprus or Israel, they're, um, they're very pale once again. Uh, and that sort of pattern sort of changes as you go across uh, as you go across the world. You know, I, I've seen some of the ones in the Caribbean, for example, and they're really dark on their faces, and the, the, you wouldn't think it was a white bird at all. But you still know it was a barn owl. They still have that amazing, like heart-shaped face, that that that, that lovely teardrop-shaped body, and those those long feathered legs. There's just something that just seems, I think, so so calm and relaxing about them. They never seem to be that stressed. They always seem to be quite easygoing birds. I think male and female. Um are they are they separable? Can you if if two if a male and female flew past, could you could you separate them? Uh, no, I don't think I could. No, I think that there's 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 too much overlap between them. Sometimes you can, especially with the the, the dark bellied ones, some would be a bit paler or darker than the others. But no, not not reliably so. A lot of that would would depend actually on in the hand measurements. They look they look so similar. And of course, we rarely get to see them very well either. When you do glimpse an owl, it's just one that's maybe drifted across the road in front of your car, or maybe you see one far off, maybe up on a perched on a fence post, and then you know you can't get any closer than that they're monogamous um so they, they, they pair for life unless one of them sort of uh, dies uh, prematurely or, or whatever but they they interestingly they um they will roost apart so they, they i mean you talk about the ghostly appari- apparition but they choose to roost in sort of you know mad old places sort of abandoned cottages uh, castle ruins old uh, burnt down churches and all sorts of places so the, the the ghostly apparition really really does fit for the sites they select to roost yeah, it, it does. So it's a bird that's long been associated, yes, with ruined castles and old churches, particularly graveyards. You see this ghostly white shape just floating across this graveyard after dark. And then, of course, what we haven't done, we haven't mentioned the sound that they make. And I think that that's a big reason for why people find them maybe quite spooky when they see them in such a setting. I'm 
I don't. I won't say I'm afraid of the dark, but I get the I get creeped out quite easily. And I've heard that when I've been in some sort of, uh, you know, castle ruins and stuff, and it is so spine chilling. It's crazy, and it, it gave rise to all those banshee stories and all that folklore about them. And they've they've got a hundred names because of that ghost bird and witch's bird and all these sort of things. And um, yeah, I think anyone that's ever heard that sound in the middle of sort of the night will will, will know why. Yes, it's definitely the 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 origin of the banshee. That's what it is. This ghostly white shape floating in the sky, with this blood curdling scream. And elsewhere in the world, there's all these associations as well with with sort of the the the, the underworld or with with the spirit world. And the people have thought in some places that they're, they're actually goblins or that they're evil spirits and so on. And that, unfortunately, over the years, had led to their persecution in some areas. And sometimes people, I mean, less in, in less enlightened times, would see these birds as being a threat or being an ill omen. Uh, but I'm glad to say, at least. Uh, in Ireland and across most of Europe today, that's no longer the case. People do welcome them. So although that, uh, although that sound would put your heart sideways if you come across it, once you realise what it is, you realise what a privilege it is to actually be in the presence of such an amazing bird. And where I live here on the East Coast, I live in North County Wicklow, barn owls in this part of Ireland are few and far between. We don't see them that often. But last summer, um, there was one actually hanging out around Greystones Village for a couple of weeks. And fly over my house around midnight, you just hear that sound in the sky, fly quite low over the streetlights. And I was just amazed that there, there's a barn owl over my garden i never thought i'd see it amazing really beautiful experience the they make the well a certain life stage of theirs they make another strange sound maybe a sound people will be familiar with if anyone uh, has ever spent a night in the same house as a, as a man that's had a few pints Um they <laughs> snore they can snore can't they yes it really does sound like snoring uh, let, let, let's play it there so people hear for themselves Yeah, snoring. No better description. That's exactly what it is. But less less terrifying maybe than the, than the scream was. Although I'm sure people maybe with snoring partners may, may disagree. That's what puts their heart sideways to hear that sound. Uh, but yeah, quite a different vocalization and uh, and one that you you would often hear around the nest, particularly. Yeah, it's made by the by the basically by the juveniles, by the youngsters, the chicks um, begging for food. That's how they do it. So um, at a certain stage in the summer, when uh, the chicks are of a certain size, you'll hear this snoring coming from sort of you know barn owl boxes and roofs of old sheds and any sort of chimneys and all sorts of places that they select to uh, to nest in and it's 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 really wonderful it's a strange sound out to hear again um and it has been mistaken for sort of people actually snoring in in buildings because you hear it coming from an old cottage you're like god it's still someone still lives there um but yeah it's it's, it's a good one the uh, another way people will uh, seldomly see them and they, they can tuck themselves away quite well when they're roosting during the day and they'll even sort of change roost site across the day depending on their preferences and you know the the, the angle of the light and, and and all that sort of stuff but you mightn't see them but they often leave signs um mm. including uh, pellets which um, are often found where they near the roost or the nest sites Yes, that's one of the main ways to, to, to find owls and indeed other birds of prey and also how we work out what they've been feeding on because they leave the traces behind them. Uh, so uh, what uh, owls and, and many birds of prey will do is because they don't have teeth, when they catch something like uh, a mouse or a shrew, they'll just swallow it down whole. 
Um, and what they do is then they, they let the digestive system take care of removing the nutrients and the flesh and all of that. And then what happens is they then regurgitate the indigestible parts. So these pellets that they cough up, um, they are really sort of cylindrical bundles, mostly made up of mouse hair. But inside that you'll find loads of little skulls and teeth and leg bones, all these things that they couldn't, uh, they couldn't digest. Uh, and from analysing those pellets, which are often found around the roost sites, they just cough them up there or around the nest. Uh, then when you analyse them, you can put them in warm water and dissect them with a tweezer you'd be surprised first of all how many individual little animals um, that bird has eaten in one night um, but then also you can work out exactly what, what, they're, what they're doing I was actually through analysis of those uh, of those barn owl pellets uh, that uh, was discovered that a, a new creature called the greater white-toothed shrew an uh, invasive alien species had arrived in Ireland because it first turned up in barn owl pellets not many animals will eat shrews but owls happily will apparently mammals avoid shrews because they taste repellent they have this terrible odour and a terrible taste uh, but owls like most birds don't have much by way of a sense of taste or smell so they don't they don't mind it and um, so uh, that yeah that's how it was discovered in the owl pellets very interesting and that that teases up nicely for the interview that um we're about to hear and we can't couldn't possibly have a barn owl episode um without including our raptor conservation officer john lusby who is for the last uh, over sort of i suppose it's 15 years or more now he's been mr barn owl in the country and he's done an awful lot of research and uh, monitoring of of barn owls in ireland and i interviewed him early this week so um i first started off by asking him how he personally got into barn owls Going back to as a kid, you know, I, th- I think the same with everyone. Like I very, very clear memories of encounters with barn owls, you know, I, as a child. And uh, and I think, you know, that 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 interest just, you know, that they as maintained that capture uh, it captured me. And I suppose because of that, you know, maybe that was a subconscious kind of, you know, uh, directed towards uh, barn owls when, when I was starting out. Cool, yeah, that makes sense. No, they're just, they're, they're stunning. They're amazing, they're amazing. I know, uh, like, a lot of people sort of got crazy about owls after the uh, the whole Harry Potter thing, and I know there was, like, lots of uh, exotic owls being bought as pets back during that period, which is a bit crazy, and I'm sure, uh, I'm sure barn owl conservation benefited somewhat from that as well. So what is the status of barn owls in, in Ireland and, and this part of Europe, I suppose? I, I never thought I, I'd be saying this, but it's actually looking quite positive. Barn owl populations are increasing in Ireland, at least in certain parts uh, um, of the country. And that's a it's a pretty dramatic turnaround from even a few short years ago. And I remember when I started first working on barn owls, you know, the situation was quite, quite bleak. And even from, you know, a basic perspective, I remember, you know, checking so many you know, suitable runes and uh, just drawing blanks, not finding any birds. They were that they were they were very scarce at that stage. Also, we had invested, you know, a lot of effort into providing nest boxes, and we were getting very little return, very little occupancy of the nest boxes. Um, so at at that point, you know, there would have been, you know, I think like at least in terms of we would have had knowledge of about you know thirty thirty or more pairs. Um, at that point, um, which is obviously quite low, very very different situation now. Um. And I think it's uh, definitely the fortunes of barn owls have have changed. I would love to say it's, you know, predominantly down to conservation efforts and down to, you know, improvements in habitat and provision of nest boxes and all. But and, and, and definitely, you know, those aspects uh, definitely have helped. But I think it's um, the probably the 
that the most influential factor for, for, for barn owls has been the arrival of introduced small mammal species, particularly the bank vole and the greater white-toothed shrew. So, you know, quite an artificial recovery, if, if you will, if you can put it that way, but, um, but, a, but a recovery nonetheless. And we are seeing a real significant change in, um, particularly in, uh, in Munster, uh, where, where, the bar, where traditionally was the, the, the barn owl stronghold, a, a real turnaround, increase in numbers, increase in, you know, uh, numbers of nest boxes occupied. So it definitely, it definitely is going in, in in the right direction. But that's you know only in recent years, only in the last um, five or so years. This this now really jars with the conversations me and Niall normally have because we're like very doom and gloom because unfortunately that's that's just the status of many of the species we have. Um, but it's great like that that since like even in the short few years since like I uh, back in the day before I was working for for Birdwatch Island. I mean I looked up. So so much to you and Alex and all the work you're doing and like when I was only in college I was going out with you on some field work in sort of in East Galway and West Offaly listening for for burnouts and like you would get super excited when you'd find a, a site because at that time they were just I mean they were not doing as well as as, as they are now it's um it's crazy and it's brilliant in in, in just those few short years to be able to sort of have seen that happening but um like I say, it wasn't always the same and people won't actually know that like um like Ireland is is pretty impoverished for species and small mammals. I mean, it's an island nation. It's not influenced by sort of like, you know, you don't have animals don't have the same options to come and go like they would on the continent. So we don't have the same sort of number of, 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 of prey species available to our birds of prey and stuff. So it's amazing that that's even a factor. But I suppose, again, they're, they're still under a lot of pressures. So tell me a little bit about the conservation pressures barn owls are under and what sort of uh, got them in the sort of got them down to the low web they were at 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 one point yeah absolutely right and i suppose not to paint not not to paint you know a, a false sense of security in terms of the, the 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 population status obviously they are increasing but it's starting from a from a very low base of you know after decades of uh, of of declines in the population really reaching you know quite a low and almost you know a critical level um and a lot of the the factors that have caused that decline are are still there so it's really you know we're seeing the the, the increases in recent years but it's really you know the onus is on us to make sure that that remains the case and that we implement the measures to ensure that we you know secure the population and so some of the factors that uh, that affect barn owl populations that uh, that are you know responsible for the uh, for the declines in the first place would be I suppose look you know you, you know as well as I do when we talk about barn owls being you know a bird of farmland and we see you know so many of our farmland birds you know in trouble declined like so this you know the likes of yellowhammer corncrake curlew so and similar with barn owl you know that they that probably you know the the main reasons for the declines are the changes in farming practices intensification of of farming and i suppose for barn owls that would mean you know less available in terms of uh foraging habitat nest sites um increased use of pesticides particularly rodenticides which are rat poisons um obviously barn owls feeding to a large extent on on small mammals on uh, on rodents are particularly susceptible to secondary poisoning to to rodenticides so 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 those those problems those issues are still there um as well uh, barn owls are very susceptible to to being killed on 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 roads and particularly major roads um and again that you know that is still a a, a serious problem for uh, for barn owls something that we've tried to try to do something about but uh, i think that'll you know that that'll be quite quite a quite a long road excuse the pun so 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 a lot of the the problems are 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 still there they still affect barn owls 
but I think um as well as other species, but uh, overall you know, we are we are seeing the you know the slow population recovery. But as I say, you know it's um the it it it, it it's hugely important to make sure that you know we're not you know having this conversation five years, ten years from now and talking about barnal population declines again. So it's you know it's given us even though it's you know it's quite an artificial recovery, it's given us a, a you know a unique opportunity to make sure that that re that that remains the case. And it's all about you know improvement of habitat, habitat restoration, as well as providing the nest sites there, really the, the you know, what provides benefits for um for for, for, for burnals as well as other species. Absolutely. And I mean we see that quite a lot. You'll focus on a particular species, but the the cascade effects for loads and loads of other species, uh, bird species and other species groups by improving habitat for, for barn owls is just colossal. Uh, the overall environmental health is going to sort of increase. You're going to get more insects, you're going to get more small mammals, you're going to get more birds, you're going to get more plants. And it's just, you know, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. So it's 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 really good. You named, you kind of uh, listed three main things that stuck out with me with with, with regards to the, the limitations on, on barn owls, uh, the sort of lack of housing. So barn owl boxes, shall we say. One sort of counter uh, sort of action to that. You talked about rodenticide, and, 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 and rat poisons and, and, and that and, and road collisions over the years you've done projects or you, you currently have projects on the go sort of addressing all three of those things so can you give us some examples of, of the work you've done to address uh, those three sort of issues yeah absolutely uh, maybe I'll start with the um the, the road collisions because that, that's quite recent in terms of uh, research that we carried out uh, and I suppose we started out you know it, it, it wasn't something that we initially set out to do was to you know to look at um, the, the impacts of roads and barn owls but it was something that kind of naturally became you know um, quite prominent because we were you know learning of a lot of barn owl mortalities on roads and we were we, we, we were seeing that ourselves and also certain certain roads seem to be particularly problematic and uh, the M8 motorway or at least sections of it which is the motorway runs between Cork to, to, to Dublin seem to be a real hotspot for um, Barnell Road debts so uh, we, we were able to partner with um, Transport Infrastructure Ireland and uh, we developed a, a research study to essentially learn more about um, the extent of, 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 of Barnell mortalities in roads what was causing what was influencing risk of mortality but also you know importantly what we could do about it and um, that was very insightful we, we learned a lot from that we were able to employ some new technology which was uh, such as using gps transmitters on adult birds which gave us an incredible insight as to you know their movements in the landscape but particularly how they how they used or avoided uh, major roads and what we saw was that they were very much attracted to hunt along the the roadside verges and, and obviously the reason for that being is because they can be um you know really important for for small mammals um, and we you know we, we see it you know when we're driving motorways during the day you often see uh, kestrels hovering above the you know the the grass verges of motorways and obviously you know they're they're looking for the same the the same species the same prey species as uh, as barn owls so you so we were seeing that effect that birds were drawn into you know the the motorway verges um but obviously with that that could increase risk of collision so and we were also seeing that it was predominantly young birds uh during their dispersal period that were being um uh, uh, killed on 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 roads. So so there were, there were other components to the research as well. But ultimately, it culminated in um, 
trying to develop mitigation which would preserve the you know the benefits of the the grass verges that uh, are created with uh, major roads with motorways in particular but obviously reduce the risk of collision and uh, so, so we um, developed uh, mitigation measures which were al- alongside Transport Infrastructure Ireland which were then adopted by them to essentially create a natural screening um, uh, close to the road to try and uh, deter birds from flying at the at the height of at, at the height of uh, oncoming vehicles, but also to allow them, you know, kind of to 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 continue to to forage along the motorway verges, but you know where, where they were protected from that natural screening. So that is um uh, now adopted by Transport Infrastructure Ireland and will be a require is now a requirement. Sorry for for all new roads road developments, which is which is great. So that, that there's still a, a body of work to to assess its effectiveness, and I'm sure there'll be you know tweaks required. Uh, in the future but just to, to be at that point is fantastic and hopefully it'll have a positive impact so so i think it just shows you know the where you know research can be brought into you know to practical conservation measures and practical mitigation measures in this case so that's something that has come that has been you know quite positive and you know um and and, and hopefully will continue to be so i suppose with the rodenticides that is uh, one that's maybe much more of a slow burner yeah. and uh, you know it, it is quite difficult to 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 tackle and i suppose again barnolds being one of the 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 species it really is i suppose a poster bird barnolds and red kites maybe a poster bird for rodenticide poisoning um for good or for bad in that uh, they are very susceptible to rodenticide poisoning because of their diet because they feed to a large extent on um uh, rodents on rats and mice so so what happens is people put out rodenticides put out rat poison obviously with the aim of controlling rats and mice but the problem with these uh, these toxins is their you know their effects can be indiscriminate they can obviously affect rats and mice that they're targeted for but a whole range of other wildlife and when species and small mammals in particular become contaminated then if they're taken by uh, a predator such as a barn owl, red kite, buzzard, kestrel or, or mammals such as, you know, pine marten stoats, then these poisons are, are passed up through through the food chain and can accumulate in the top predators. So we carried out a study quite a few years back funded by National Parks and Wildlife Service and the Department of Agriculture, which looked at exposure of rodenticides in barn owls and the results were uh, not unexpected, but but very uh, uh, very worrying. Um, so we found um, out of uh, sixty nine barn owls that we tested, over eighty eight percent had uh, were exposed to rodenticides, and some with uh, quite high concentrations. And actually, the concentrations were three times greater than a comparative sample of of, of barn owls in the UK. So really, points to the fact that you know rodenticide poisoning is a secondary poisoning. Um, is is a is a is a serious problem in Ireland. Um, but also as well, we now know it's it's not just barn owls. It affects you know a, a wide wide range of, of of wildlife. And um, in fact, if you think about it, like you know, uh, we now know that you know, say for example, invertebrates and the likes of slugs and snails and beetles, they can enter bait stations to you know uh, consume bait. And obviously, if they if these compounds are getting into the the lower levels of the food chain then you know the breadth of species that, that that they can affect are vast so that's something we we were integral to the establishment of the campaign for responsible rodenticide use in ireland which um uh which is definitely having a positive impact but i think that there's no two ways about it rodenticide poisoning still remains a, a serious issue in ireland and and there's a lot more work still to be done i've seen a, a nice piece just on the tv last night that you did together with a farmer and ella mcsweeney and uh, the farmer had a he'd kicked all his, his sort of rat poison and bait stations in lieu of uh, 
a barn owl pair on his farm, which I just thought was was a lovely story. It is. It's great. Nicky Murphy, what, what a character. And uh, if, if, if there's anybody more, more enthusiastic than barn owls in the country, I'd say, yeah, I'd say that award would go to him. But it's um, it's uh, and but, but there are many others like him and it's such a positive story to tell. So just to give the background there, he um, used to, by his own admission, use a few buckets of rat poison each year, <sighs> but then put up a, a barn owl nest box uh, to, well, actually, initially he, he just, he noticed barn owls are nesting in a hollow cavity in a beech tree, which is just outside the, the front of their house, but subsequently put up a nest box and uh, the birds are happily residing in the nest box. But since the birds, uh, since the barn owls have taken up residence, he, he noticed he didn't have to use rat poisons anymore. Um, and he, and then to, obviously then to protect the birds, he, he, he stopped using and hasn't, hasn't opened a bucket of, uh, of, of, of poison since. So, and again, like if you go, back like a few generations like you know barn owls were the best means of natural rodent control and that's probably one of the reasons why they are you know so, so well loved so popular in Ireland because of you know it was seen as incredibly lucky to have a pair of barn owls nesting in the farmyard because of the fact then you know that they were doing all the work in terms of uh, in, in terms of rodent control so it's just great to hear you know in more modern times you know that the like that you know uh, the, the story from from Nicky and from other farmers of you know being able to stop using rat poison and letting barnels do to do what they do best and then it's a win-win you know if they're providing an s-box the barnels are benefiting they're benefiting for the role the barnels are playing so it's um it's a far more natural balance and um and i think you know we uh we need to move more in that direction and even if it's not you know barnels that there are you know there are other means of controlling rodents if if rodent control is necessary rather than resorting to to rodenticides to poisons totally and it's lovely to see that tradition return to farming that they live alongside with the you know the natural predator and it, it's it's a win-win like you say and i mean there's examples of it all across europe throughout history where where provision for barn owls in various buildings around uh, houses and, and farms was 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 made to uh, to encourage them to nest and uh, to do just what what you've described there. So it's it's really great. And again, you mentioned uh, Nicky's story there that he put up a barn owl box. So it's not a. I mean, you know, people will be familiar with bar- with boxes, but a barn owl box is a bit more to it. Maybe it's a bit more finesse than just sort of nailing it to the nearest tree. So maybe just talk about give us some details of the design, uh, the location, and maybe. Uh, the positioning, I suppose, would be the three things you'd think about putting up a barn owl box. Yeah, so with with the barn owl box, the same with nest boxes with other species, you're you're essentially trying to recreate what the you know natural nest sites are, what the what, what the birds are looking for, and based on their nesting requirements. So 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 with barn owls, it's um I suppose there's a few key things. One is the design of the nest box, and um so so we either place nest boxes in interior, so within buildings, particularly uh, sheds or barns, or else uh, exterior boxes, which would be out on uh, you know, uh, typically mature trees. The nest boxes. There's a few key things. You want them nice and deep, so that uh, that's important, so that it doesn't create risk of, uh, unfortunately, barn owl, young barn owls are quite prone to falling out of nests if uh, you know if they can get up to the, the the nest entrance, and if you can imagine they're you know jostling for position, you know, to get fed first and before they can fly, you know, they can accidentally push each other out. And at this time of the year, even say last night, I was on a, or yesterday evening, I was on a rescue mission where where exactly that had happened at a nest site here in Galway. 
So, to, you know, if you have a, a nice deep nest site, it means that the birds, ca the young birds can't get up to the, the nest entrance until they're, you know, reasonably well developed and uh, more capable of, 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 of staying in the nest. Also as well, you know, a ledge, a landing platform to allow them to exercise when they're starting to, to, to spread the wings and, and, uh, and um, start to, to, you know, to get to get used to their wings and uh, with, with a, a lip to, again, to prevent to the risk of, of birds taking a tumble. Um, and obviously, you know, you want the, the, the nest boxes, you know, weatherproofed um nicely protected from the elements apart from that it's uh you know it's about the you know the the suitable you know uh, the site selection and choosing the areas that um obviously birds are going to be naturally investigating um but also as well where you know birds are going to benefit and that's both the the actual specific site itself you know so that it's free from disturbance there's not a risk of say cats or other predators being being able to get to the nest boxes there's not a lot of human activity coming and going say for, you know from in and around the nest box or if it's in a barn that it's not you know very very busy um but then as well in an area where there's good um, habitat surrounding so obviously you know that uh, that 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 birds would do well so and and we've had great great success with the with the nest boxes it's been it's been hard earned put it that way but uh it's in terms of you know uh, we, we you know i remember in the early days you know putting up nest boxes and then going back very excitedly the next year to see you know is there any signs of use and and, and nothing for for quite a few years but it's really taken off in in recent years and i think this year we're going to have over we'll reach over 150 um occupied nest boxes Yikes. with pairs in them and it's incre it's increasing year after year and th there's so many individuals and groups that that um have gone to such effort to uh, to put up a nest box as well and it's um it's 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 really it, it, it there's been a huge surge of interest in recent years and it's just fantastic because it's, it's providing such benefits and as well as you know with nest boxes as well it means that uh because we're choosing the nest sites, you know, it means we can, you know, or the location, it means, you know, we can choose the, the best locations. And, you know, in situations, say, for example, you know, you might have, uh, you know, a, an old mature tree that maybe is, you know, there's a ca there's cavities in it, might, you know, prone to being blown down in storms or, you know, derelict buildings, which barnals off, often occupy, which are, you know, becoming less suitable as, you know, over time as they start to, uh, as they start to crumble. So with nest boxes, it means that, you know, we're providing safe and secure nest sites. So, Good for the barn owls, good for us. It you know it allows us to monitor them as well. So um, it's uh yeah, it it's been it's been it's it's been a fantastic success. I must say with the with the nest boxes. It's fantastic. We we share a pal in Barry Nolan, um, who does a lot of work now in Leash, um, with nest box projects and um. Yeah, God, he's another one that got the has got the bug of barn owls and he's just in sheds and up trees all over the county sort of uh, putting up nest boxes and it's great to see. Um, and I know he's constantly sort of getting advice and, and, and feedback from yourself. So it's just great to see that that liaison, that coordination, that network of, of, of people working for barn owls around the country. It's 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 really deadly. And, uh, you know, barn owls and, and Birdwatch Ireland and we owe a lot to those people who are, are committed to that. We have a design for a John Lusby approved barn owl box design on our website. So if people just Google uh, Birdwatch Ireland barn owl box or whatever, they'll find it. And um, they'll also find that booklet that uh, you produced a few years ago with a, with a design for inside of a shed as well, because you can't put them inside. Um, you can't put them inside hay sheds and stuff, can't you? You can indeed, yeah, yeah. They're probably the most, uh, the most, um, uh, the, the nest boxes that, that we've had best success with is in is is in the hay sheds. And just to say, we have a video as well, which is uh, with uh, Alan McCarthy, who's uh, who's been doing phenomenal work on barn owls, um, uh, in recent years, as well as uh, as you mentioned Barry Nolan and, and and so many more. But we have a video as well, which is basically how to on barn owl nest boxes. So definitely check that out if you're if you're interested in um, in putting 
putting up nest boxes, everything from the design, construct, the construction, installation, monitoring, uh, one stop shop. So all the information is there as well as well as your your. Brilliant. That's that, that's on our YouTube channel, is it? It is on our YouTube channel and loads of other videos and barnals and habitat creation, rodenticides. Uh, yeah, so definitely check out the check out the YouTube channel. Deadly. I got a lovely email the other day, an update from from Deck Franks, uh, who you'll know as well, and. Um, it was a great story. So last, I think last year, he said there was a bad storm in, um, in, in it was March or April, I think. And he'd been out sort of searching the local area for, for Barnos with very little sort of, very little results uh, for a while. But after this storm, his uncle gave him a, a call saying, oh, I uh, have a barn out here for you that got, got hit on the road. And Deck actually initially thought that the barn was dead, uh, but it was alive. So um, he got it to um, a couple of people he knows, Animal Magic, uh, the Wildlife Rescue, and they nursed it back to good health and and released it back uh, at a site uh, close to a site where deck had some um some signs of of, of barn owls and um just this this summer he's he's a uh, he's confirmed a pair of breeding so uh it looks like that injured bird uh, went from sort of close to death to uh, uh, sort of dusting itself off and getting back up and running and, and finding a mate and, and producing a nest of young, which is which is fantastic. It is, isn't it? And I think you said it there, like that just captures like the, I suppose the collaboration, the teamwork, all the different people involved, like and uh, Deck Franks is another one that's just been quietly working away in the background doing phenomenal work in terms of um he's he's putting up nest boxes he's surveying sites in his local patch in, in south offaly but uh yeah that was just a fantastic story he, he was sending me very very excited messages there a few evenings ago when he had confirmed that when he was hearing uh snoring chicks in um wow. in a church which is which is the site which where they released that bird and uh yeah and and incredible work by animal magic who god there's been so many not only barnolds but um uh, uh, raptors, birds in general that uh, that have been through them and you know and have come out the other side being um, uh, being released and uh, so yeah that 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 just I suppose sums up the 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 benefits of you know of that work and 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 just the, you know the and there's so many people that are involved in in brown owl conservation like that that have just you know been doing amazing work over the years and and with amazing results. You just uh, we should before we before we finish up they're they're not an owl that hoots first of all they they're various different sort of they're screech owls again. But uh, but the the youngsters snore. So tell me about. Just talk me through their their breeding ecology a little bit. Bernal, they've got a a very a, a very long breeding season. So they'll at the I suppose kind of in the run up to Christmas or the, towards the end of the year, you'll get the the male and the female will start start to become quite vocal and they'll start to be identifying. You know the the prospecting for for the nest site for the for for the the coming breeding season. And it's at that stage really you hear that characteristic blood curling screech which is the you know which our bar- barn owls are known for which is you know responsible for the, the mitts and tails of, uh, of of the banshee so that would be one of the main vocalizations of um of barn owls and an amazing sound to hear you know on a still dark night kind of in in, uh, in the winter and in the lead up to the breeding season but then the other the other call that is probably my my favorite uh, uh sound to hear in nature is the is the young snoring and and it is exactly exactly as as it's described it does sound like snoring and i've actually you know quite quite a few um uh encounters where people have mistaken it for you know actual uh, people snoring um because you know it's it's obviously yeah it, it late at night and and sometimes from uh from from, from from ruined buildings but that is essentially the the young birds uh begging for food from the adults and as soon as the sun goes down uh, right throughout the night until the the sun rises again the the following morning they'll be um snoring in the nest and, and it sounds like a hissing sound and uh, it actually can and so at this time of the year now 
at, from barn owl nest sites that, that that's what you can hear and it can actually carry a long long way particularly in a still night i've heard it from over a kilometer away from a nest site but if you hear that sound you know you, you know that uh that that birds are breeding so so great great sound to hear but but if you if, if you don't know you know what, what's responsible it can be a, a quite quite an, e- an eerie sound you know particularly from a graveyard from a ruined church i find castles sort of creepy at the at the best of times i remind the middle of the night i don't know how you lads do it thanks for joining us i will uh, if you humor us again for the for the autumn winter um season you might come back and talk about merlin and some of the other raptors you work on as well i think that'd be a really fascinating episode as well i would love to yeah absolutely count me in Oh, nice one, Ricky. It's always nice to hear from John, isn't it? Mr. Barnell, as you said at the start of it. No better name for him. What he doesn't know about Barnells isn't worth knowing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He, I know, he, he knows his onions. And some really interesting monitoring projects he's done. I mean, uh, you know, the various conservation issues he's looked into, uh, the provision of, of Barnell nest boxes, uh, how to sort of work out the problem with striking cars on our motorways and, um, you know, their foraging behaviour, rodenticides. I mean, he's really uh, done an awful lot of work uh, on behalf of Birdwatch Ireland over the years, which is, which is just fantastic. And it's fantastic to see the species recovering. It really is. And it's nice to be able to share a success story for a change, because very often in these podcasts, we try to keep it as upbeat as we can. But there's a lot of doom and gloom. We're talking about declines in species and this species is struggling. This one's facing extinction. Well, it looked like the barn owl was going that way. But through the work that John has been doing, along with other groups around the country that do great work with barn owls, uh, this species has slowly but surely been recovering, particularly in places like Munster and in Connemara. And we know that we can then replicate uh, those uh, those conservation techniques elsewhere in the country and indeed elsewhere in the world and can bring similar benefits to that species elsewhere because it's not a bird that anyone wants to lose it's just such an iconic beautiful bird one of the most widespread bird species on the whole planet yet facing challenges across that whole, whole range so the work that john has been doing i think is going to pay you know really pay off in the long run and we see that species gradually returning we've identified through careful research what the problems are and once you know that then you can start addressing those problems compensating for them and it's quite clear as well through john's work the key to that has been involving local communities it's important that people feel a, a, a sense of a vested pride I suppose in their local barn owls and this is something we've seen in communities now across the country it's, it's wonderful that so many people are getting behind them yeah, and equally, I mean, John mentioned some of the, the people who are involved in barn owl conservation. I mean, he couldn't mention them all, but I say, like, thanks and fair play and fair dues goes to all those men and women across the country that, that have sort of put the shoulder to the wheel and, and, and turned around the fortunes for barn owls. And, um, you know, it, it's fantastic. Uh, I think we're both agreed and everyone's agreed that they're, they're such a, a mega cool species. Let's cut to bird of the week and... I want to talk about a species that is linked to barn owls in that it, it often nests in similar sites. You'll often find this sort of two of them in the same location. But this species is going to be so much more uh, overlooked than, than a barn owl uh, at these sites. And it's the it's the feral pigeon or the rock dove. And I want to start off to ask you, are they a separate species? Is it the same species? What is the confusion about the, the rock dove and the feral dove? What's the story? With so they are the same species in a nutshell. So they're uh, Columba livia is, is the, uh, the the Latin name for them. So to give the, the origin is, in many ways, the feral pigeon, the bird we're all familiar with from our city and town streets and, and, and buildings and so on. It's in some ways a man-made invention, which I think is, is kind, of, it's kind of interesting. It's descended from the wild rock dove, uh, a bird which... Uh, 
um, although it's no longer common in Ireland, it's a bird you do still find on some more remote islands and headlands and, and coastal cliffs. Uh, and you find in other parts of Europe as well. Wild rock doves, uh, they look like the most typical feral pigeons you'd see generally. They're kind of mostly grey, sort of a, a, a purplish greenish iridescence on the neck. They have a, two black stripes in each wing. Um, so a lot of our feral pigeons have a similar, um, that similar plumage pattern that they got from their wild ancestors. However, the big dis- the difference is that wild rock doves tend to be really skittish. They're very shy birds. They don't let people get near them. They tend to be in quite remote areas. And so they can be very hard to see. Uh, so it, it's a bird that mo- most people aren't, aren't really aware of. And if they did see them, they might think, oh, it's just one of those 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 those, those street rats that we see, you know, those yeah. rats with wings um, that uh, that you, you get. But in fact, they're really fascinating in their own right. However, that was one of the first wild animals to be domesticated in Europe. Uh, people kept them for, for, for centuries for various reasons. First of all, um, for, for meat and for eggs, quite a lot of meat on a pigeon. They lay eggs quite regularly. Uh, and they also had this amazing homing ability. So it was worked out that if uh, if the birds were taken away from where they had been raised, they could fly back extremely long distances, which is really quite quite odd because wild rock doves aren't migratory. They stay more or less resident in the same locations throughout their lives. So we don't quite know how this evolved. But uh, anyway, so what happened was then people realized, well, if we put messages on the legs of these birds, um, they can they can carry communications between countries and over long distances. And so they had this, the carrier pigeon was born and then the sport of pigeon racing developed and people really got into this. Now, over time, what happened, what happened was that the economic importance of these pigeons um, declined. Uh, people got more into things like chickens and ducks which had more meat and larger eggs and a lot of these pigeons uh, these dovecuts were just you know they, they were just abandoned the pigeons went wild again and all different many different varieties had been bred so some of them had like white plumage some had brown plumage uh, some had sort of ruffled frills down their legs or big ruffled collars around their necks and um, some had had long necks and so they look quite different um, but then what happened was in the wild and um, when they got back to wild state they interbred with each other and pretty quickly reverted back to the wild type so they behaved like wild birds except they'd lost their fear of humans so they were quite happy to go rather than to the sea cliffs that they had an ancestral memory of uh, they were happy to go and uh, nest on on building ledges um, in urban areas and that's that's really how they became to be the dominant bird species of, of urban areas right across the globe yeah and i mean like you said you talk about the sort of flying rats you get some pretty gnarly ones in in the big cities and you know uh, around train stations and places like that but they have their own charm and they're certainly intelligent species and like you know we know a lot about we often talk about avian intelligence in in crows in the corvid family but it back during the sort of world wars and stuff the, the brits and the yanks and um everyone was putting an awful lot of money into studying these species because they were you know they were handy when it came to uh you know carrier pigeons and um all that sort of stuff and they did discover they're, they're quite an intelligent animal you know they're maybe not the avian einsteins that that, that, that a raven is but um they're up there certainly Yes, they're very, very good at solving problems, particularly when food is involved, because uh, they're they're hungry birds and they do what they can to eat. But they've had they've had to develop a degree of intelligence because they're social birds. First of all, I mean, you usually see intelligence involving in creatures that are, are highly social. And um, there are some exceptions, like oct- octopuses or octopoides, as I found out recently. The correct plural is, and yeah. um, they tend to be solitary, intelligent animals. But that's 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 really the exception rather than the rule. When you look at animals like crows, parrots, monkeys, wolves, they're all pack or flock animals. And pigeons are like that too. They they live in groups, so they have to they have to read each other's moods. They have this social hierarchy, uh, and I think that 
really the reason that people haven't appreciated that fully is because it's a bird yeah, that people really overlook. They're just seen as, as you know, like a, a vermin, vermin on the streets. Um, whereas in fact, they, there's a lot more to them than that. They're, they're very interesting. One of the things I think that I find most fascinating about them as well is that uh, we biologists, we owe them a great debt of gratitude because they are the creature that first sparked really the whole idea of the, the, the theory of evolution by natural selection in the mild mind of Charles Darwin. Um, so um, for anyone who's read uh, On the Origin of Species, is seminal work about that and if you haven't read it by the way I'd highly recommend it it's surprisingly readable um, and it's 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 written it's written in a lovely style so I would definitely recommend that but when you do you might think um expect there'd be loads in there about the Galapagos Islands and all the Darwin's finches and all these and there is a little bit when you're way through the book towards the end um but the whole start of the book the whole thing this chapter is about pigeons um he was a pigeon nut and he saw these different breeds of pigeon um, as I said earlier some were really fancy with big frills on their necks necks or on their legs some were different colours they look like they're complete, not just completely different species, but they're like they belong to completely different genera. Um, but then he saw that when he bred them back together and bred, bred the, you know, crossbred these different strains of pigeons, again, within, within a few generations, they reverted back to something that looked very similar to the bird he knew as the wild rock dove. And he realized, aha, uh -huh, they look very different. But what must have happened is well, uh, rock doves were domesticated and over many generations, humans bred them selectively for certain, uh, for certain traits that they wanted to enhance. And this probably happened with dogs as well, I suppose, when it comes to when they came from the wolf and then maybe with breeds of cat. And he starts thinking about this and realises maybe nature does the same thing. Maybe pressures from the environment, um, survival pressures on uh, plants and animals over a long time period of time they change their appearance in, and, and their abilities in order to fit better into that world and so it was pigeons that sparked the whole thing for him when he saw what happened when all the different breeds mingled back together again which i think is pretty cool it's really cool and people do not give them that sort of respect at all um let's um before we forget let's listen to their their their, their call or their song i find it so relaxing and uh, subtle and, and just really nice <laughs> That's one a lot of people will know, all right. It's, it's sort of this, this sort of background murmuring you'll hear it often in, in urban areas. It's something that sometimes you even tune it out. But you're right, it is very relaxing. There's something nice and calm about it. It's great. It's great. And they, they, I mean, the the rock doves as well, you can be alerted to them. They kind of have that, that wing clap thing that all pigeons do mm. when they sort of when they throw themselves off a perch or out of a tree. Um, and often you wouldn't be sort of mind. You could be walking along some cliffs or nearby and uh, you hear that sound and you're alerted to uh, some, some, some rock doves taken off. So that's a, that's a good way to sort of uh, to, to catch a glimpse of them. The, the other thing they can do uh, as well as, 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 you know, it's a thing in the pigeon family is they can produce a thing called crop milk, which allows them to, um, to sort of uh, reproduce all year almost. So that you, can, you can have sort of pigeon nests active in the middle of winter, which is, is bizarre to us. Yes, it is. Yes. So, so they do have a, among birds, the, the, the pigeon and dove family. And by, by the way, you can use pigeon and dove interchangeably, we should say. They're the same thing. And sometimes people use the word dove for the, the cuter looking ones. But yes, they all produce this stuff called crop milk in their throats. It sounds a bit gross, but it's basically produced by swollen linings of the skin cells in their throats sort of slough off. Both males and females produce this. So the males make this milk as well as the females do. And when it comes time to feed the, the young pigeons, they actually stick their, their whole heads inside mum and dad's throat and they sort of lapping this stuff up um, so that's that's quite unusual but you're right that does mean that um, that they can breed at any time of year because they're not reliant on one particular type of food to feed their chicks so if you're a blue tit you want to time your breeding to coincide with the peak emergence of caterpillars because that's the fuel that keeps your chicks going you need the caterpillars for them however if you're a pigeon 
you, if you're, you, when you're an adult, you can eat lots of different things. You could eat little plant shoots, you could eat grain if you find it, you might eat small invertebrates, you eat all sorts of things. Um, but you don't need to feed that back to your chicks. What you can do is just produce this milk in your throat uh, and feed that to the chicks so they keep them going year round. I think that's one of the reasons too why the, the feral pigeon has been such a successful bird in cities because it can scavenge on basically any old rubbish and still produce nutritious food for the chicks using its throat, which is pretty cool. The other thing that pigeons can do um, that's often overlooked and that we humans take for granted is that pigeons and doves, they're the only birds in the world that can drink using suction the way that we do. So when most birds drink, what they have to do is they put their beak into the water, into water, and they close their beak. They have to tilt their whole head back to use the power of gravity to take the water to their stomach. Pigeons, and pigeons alone, can stick their beak into the water and use it like a straw to suck up the water. It means they get the drinking over and done with much, much faster. It means they're less vulnerable um, because they don't want to be on the ground for too long. Because when they're drinking, they can't see danger coming um, so, and everything wants to eat a pigeon. So they want to get that over and done with as fast as possible and get back to the nest. Uh, so, uh, so that's what they do. So we, we take it for granted that we, that's how we drink. But uh, pigeons are the only birds that can match us. Fascinating. No, we take we do take pigeons for granted one hundred percent. I'm glad we got to cover uh, the the rocked over the feral pigeon in 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 bird of the week. It's a a nod to the train station pigeon. I think it's important we did that. It's a great one. Uh, yeah. Until next time, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. So thanks everyone for listening. As we always say, um, if you like listening to us, please do support our work. Birdwatch Ireland as a charity really needs your help. If you go to birdwatchireland.ie, you can find out how to become a member, how to make donations. You can buy products from our shop. All of that helps to support us. And of course, you can find the website there. You can find out a lot more about the work that, uh, that John Lusby has been doing. Tick and serve barn owls. There's uh, lots of interesting downloads on there, including plans you can download actually to build your own barn owl nest box, which I think is pretty cool. So just to finish by saying the In Your Nature podcast is produced in partnership with the Heritage Offices of Leach and Offaly County Councils, supported by the Heritage Council and the Department of Housing, Local Government and Heritage. This podcast is edited by Anne-Marie Kelly.